Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it sounds like Ontario's science advisory table has had enough of being ignored by the Ford government. It's publicly making its own plea for further action to curb the third wave of the pandemic. Are we finally turning a corner here? Well, the verdict is in. An ex-cop Derek Chauvin was found guilty of murder and manslaughter in the death of George Floyd. What's next? Well, we'll talk about it. And the Ontario Hockey League has officially cancelled the 2021 season. Hamilton Bulldogs owner Michael Andlar will join us to talk about the ramifications of that decision. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, find out what's happening here in Ontario with COVID-19. It's been a very troubling time, of course. The numbers have been very, very distressing when you look at the, the number of new cases that have gone on here, the stress that they put on hospitals. And uh, the revelation, although I, thought, I think a lot of us probably had a knowledge of this anyway, or at least you know, anecdotal knowledge of this, uh, that there was a, a disconnect uh, between the uh, science table that the Ford government said that they were relying on for information and uh, what the Ford government actually ended up doing. Uh, you may remember a couple of days ago on our program, we had uh, Dr. Peter Union, uh, one of the directors of that, who was very, very frustrated. He says, what we're saying and what they're doing seem to be two different things. Well, uh, that may be changing right now. It sounds like the Ontario's uh, science advisory table has had enough of being ignored by this government and is publicly making their own statements. Uh, Global's Brianna Carnegie has the details. Ontario's science advisory table is proposing drastic changes to allow only truly essential workplaces to stay open. And it stresses those workers must must be paid to stay home when they're sick. Shop everything down inside that you possibly can. Dr. Peter Uni, the table's scientific director, has been calling for stronger measures for months now. Here's his recent comments on Global News Radio. I keep saying the same. I, I Since January, I know I sound like a broken record. The group says Ontario must not impose policies that harm or neglect racialized, marginalized and vulnerable populations. It's also calling for safe outdoor activity to be allowed, noting income consistent policies with no clear link to scientific evidence are not effective in fighting COVID-19. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So uh, where do we go from here? I mean, clearly we're in a crisis situation here. We're going to talk about the impact it's having on hospitals and a policy and hopefully a path going forward. Uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Brian Schwartz. Uh, Dr. Schwartz is a co-chair of the Ontario Science Advisory Table and also Chief of Communicable Diseases, Emergency Preparedness and Response with Public Health Ontario. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, as I've talked to a number of your colleagues, including Dr. Uni, of course, a couple of days ago, and you just heard a, a clip of uh, some of the comments he made to us on the program. Uh, I, 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 I'm understating this, Doctor, but there's a sense of frustration among a number of your colleagues right now to say, look, it, this, is, this is not the way we think we should be going here. Uh, do you share that frustration with, with the, the, what Dr. Uni I think, classified as a, sort of a disconnect between what the medical profession is suggesting we do and what the government actually wanted to do? Yeah, you know, we we are frustrated, and 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 it's not the first time, you know, that we uh, we get frustrated because everyone I know uh, has been frustrated. We're frustrated by the pandemic itself because the virus is smarter than we are. But uh, certainly, we were frustrated to hear some of the policies that were announced on Friday. But I'm pretty convinced we're getting on the same page now uh, with uh, some of the big things that we we need to do, and we're starting to hear that already. Well, and I wanted to ask you about that, and I'm glad you brought that up. I'm, I'm looking now, uh, first of all, at what we heard from the government on Friday, but here's the way we're going to go forward on this. But the immediate reaction from the medical community, uh, from the law enforcement community and everything else, I, I got the sense that Friday was actually a pivotal day. We may have just actually turned a corner here. Well, I, I'd like to think so. Uh, you know, I think 
One of the things that the science advisory table has had from the beginning, and, and you know, I'm not trying to defend government, but to give government credit, is that they have a, we have been transparent. We have a seat. Uh, Dr. Brown, my co-chair, gives his updates every other week from a seat in the legislature so that you know, while perhaps some of the policies uh, that they announced on Fridays didn't align with what we have, rec- have recommended, it was out, still, still out there for all to see on our website, in Staney's announcements, and, um, you know, the policymakers have to do what they have to do, and, and we saw the result of that. But we do have the opportunity uh, through the government to be transparent and are not seen as kind of lobbying um, criticisms from the outside. So I think our relationship is good. Uh, we may not agree on everything, but I think that once uh, uh, the public uh, was able to assess for themselves the science uh, I think we saw some uh, some some reaction, and to its credit, some ch- some changes appear to be coming. Well, exactly, and and let's let's face it. I mean, if we look back on this over the last fourteen or fifteen months, Doctor, uh, a lot of governments have kind of messed this up, and and I understand to a point because this is all brand new to them. Uh, but it, it seems as if maybe the the most egregious mistake a lot of them made was trying to balance, uh, you know, the economy and and the medical information that they're getting here. Uh, and I and I understand that's a very difficult thing to try to do here, and it hasn't worked well for an awful lot of jurisdictions, not just Ontario. Uh, but as, as you and others on your panel have suggested, uh, you, you know, the economy is not going to get better until the, until the pandemic goes away. That's, that's really all it comes down to it. The rest of the time, uh, you know, it's, it's a very, very difficult balance to try to make. And I think the government's finally, and all, all governments now seem to be getting that message. Yeah, uh, you know, that, that's what we said, and, and, and this is what we wrote, because we truly believe that, you know, sort of going on and off, um, especially in the middle of a third wave, is 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 not going to benefit anybody. Even though their intentions, the intentions to to keep people working, to keep people active, are are very important. And we have an opportunity now because we can get outside more. Uh, people can get outside more in small groups safely uh, to be able to at least have a taste of what might come over the summer. Um, in a very, very small way. It also buys us time to get more people vaccinated, particularly in essential workplaces and in, in the hotspots that, that, that have been identified, so that, that when we start to ease the restrictions, and they won't be eased all at once, but when they start to be eased, hopefully sometime in May, that we can gradually emerge from this in a very careful and safe way and protect ourselves, protect our hospitals and our healthcare workers in looking after patients. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the frustration that the people are feeling right now is, is uh, because of, of the things that are, are happening here and the policies that have been enacted haven't seemed to be working. And I, I, I agree with you, Doctor. I don't think there was ever any malicious intent by anybody in government to say, well, we don't care, we're just going to do this anyway. Uh, they're, they're doing what they think is best, and, and there have been some missteps. But I guess what we need to do as of you know today, uh, April 21st, is, okay, well, how do we go forward on this? And uh, you know, we've, we've got a crisis situation here, and, and I wanted to get your first First of all, you read on what's happening in the hospitals right now, because you've always used that as kind of a bellwether to say if, if there's pressure there, there's pressure on ICUs and hospital beds, uh, we've got a problem. And I, I'm getting the sense that that's what's happening in Ontario. Uh, no question. And, and both in terms of the numbers, if you can you see the number of hospitalizations, I don't have today's, but yesterday's was in the high 700s, mm-hmm. which is more than twice what we felt our, 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 our ability to care for um, patients uh, comprehensively 
um, would allow. But the government, to its credit, is is opening up more beds. Mm-hmm. But we're still way, way at the breaking point. And in my discussions with critical care physicians, uh, my, my background's emergency medicine, so I know them. Okay. Uh, they are at the breaking point. They're seeing families. They're seeing multiple members of the same families that, that need to be cared for in ICU. Sometimes they have to transfer one member of the family to a different hospital. It's, it's taking its toll on healthcare workers, and it's taking its toll certainly on the system. The other issue is, of course, that that's what we look at, and that's what we consider to be our breaking point, but it's a late indicator, Bill, mm-hmm. because uh, if the, you know, once the hospitals are full, uh, it, it will take three or four weeks to get those numbers down, even if, you know, we start what we started in the last two weeks, uh, reducing mobility, reducing the number of contacts, and having higher protective measures because it's got to work its way through the system. People take, once you get exposed, it takes about four weeks to actually get sick enough to be in an ICU. Yeah, this uh, that, that's reactive medicine, I guess, as, a, as opposed to being proactive, which I, I, I know you and your colleagues have been talking to us about for the last year or so, and, and, and we're, we've been doing it in stages, but I think one of your colleagues mentioned to it, it's like, you know, getting a, a prescription for medication. He said, if you take this for 10 days and you feel better after five, so you stop taking it, well, it just comes back again. Uh, and, and we need to understand that, the, you know, this is going to take time, and it's, there's no quick fix here, is there? No, no, it's as if you hold on to the prescription for a week or two before uh, you actually get it filled. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. Uh, you know, I think, and I, but I think looking forward is, is the main thing. Right now, you know, we've, mm-hmm. we started the lockdown two weeks ago. We've in, we're increasing the measures. We're getting more specific with the measures in the real hotspots, in, the, in those workplaces, reducing, we hope to reduce the number of workplaces that are open to the, only those essential ones and really have, uh, you know, a full-court press on both safe workplaces and vaccine delivery into those workplaces, which is what we're trying to turn around. And the science keeps evolving because our original plan in vaccine was to get all the elderly people. Well, we pivoted on that, and it's pretty hard to do in every part of Ontario. But now it's really to get to younger populations that are in those essential workplaces as the science is evolving and we're knowing more. Are you encouraged, Doctor, by the fact that what we've seen anyway in the last uh, 10 to 14 days especially is uh, is the uptake on the vaccination program, especially among some of the uh, the younger demographics? There was some reticence, I think, about that uh, a month or so ago, but everybody seems to be buying into the program now. Uh, I, I, I hope so. I'd like to think so. We, we certainly are working very hard to uh, to increase vaccine acceptance, particularly amongst those populations that might be vaccine hesitant. We know that there are populations like that, many of which are actually in some of those socially disadvantaged areas that are that are part of our essential workforce. So we're working very hard to make sure that that effort is sustained. And the reality is uh, that many of the young people that are getting vaccinated now are still in a higher demographic, people, you know, that, that, that are more in my demographic, unfortunately, that, that are up on top of things. So we really have to work very hard to get into the demographics that may be a little bit hesitant and may be harder to reach. But so that's, our, that's certainly what we're doing in the next few weeks to try and work towards that. And the message we're hearing from from your panel and a number of your colleagues, of course, is you know the, the vaccination is so very important when you get that, but it can't be done in isolation. I mean, we still have to follow the other protocols that you've been recommending as well. Hundred percent. So, first vaccinations probably around. I don't want to quote any specific figures, but probably fifty to seventy percent effective, but not until at least two weeks after you've received it. 
And then once people get their second vaccine, uh, it'll be up to towards uh, 70 to 95 percent effectiveness, again, seven days after that second vaccine. Because uh, as, as a number of your colleagues have said, I mean, you, you can't vaccinate your way out of the pandemic. We still have to, to do the, the social distancing, the mask wearing, which I, I get the impression, doctor, is probably going to be going on for quite some time. Well, it is because, uh, you know, again, a better solution is to, to vaccinate more people for the first time. We know that from our modeling uh, that we will save more lives on a population basis if we get to everybody first and only a few people getting their second shots, the ones that are particularly vulnerable. So it will be a long time. It will be a few more months. And as I said, even when the restrictions are starting to relax, we hope sometime towards the end of May, it's not going to be all at once. It's going to be very gradual. How are your colleagues, and I'm talking about everybody in the healthcare field, uh, responding to this? I mean, they've been un- under incredible pressure. Uh, you know, we've talked to, to Dr. Warner and others that, that are also in emergency medicine over the last couple of weeks, doctor, and, uh, and, and they're talking about the stress that, 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 you know, everybody seems to be in, not just in, in ORs and in and ICUs, but uh, throughout the hospital, because it, 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 there's a ripple effect here, isn't there? Well, there is, but you know, everybody's everybody's tired, everybody's frustrated, um, everybody. You know, this is a world event, and, and but certainly healthcare workers uh, are exhausted. Um, and again, I don't practice emergency medicine anymore. I'm in public health, but mm-hmm. uh, but everybody is exhausted, including including politicians, including decision makers, uh, and including healthcare workers. So the sooner we get out of this. I think the better off we all will be as we start wending our way towards uh, the new normal. Uh, for those of us that remember SARS, and <laughs> there are a few of us still hanging around that I remember kind of it lit- very, very well. Uh, yeah, I, I just got to say, you, emergency. Uh, well, and, did, and, and the question a lot of us are asking now, doctors, didn't we learn anything from that? I mean, there was, you know, Justice Campbell and so many other people did reports about this. Uh, Dr. Henry, of course, who's out in B.C. right now, uh, was, was front and center. But it seemed as if that got put in somebody's bottom drawer. We just seemed to be caught off guard by this. If we learned from what we're going through right now, because there will be a next time, I'm sure. A hundred percent. And I, and I, listen, I, you know, this, this SARS, uh, uh, is dwarfed compared to the extent of yeah. this pandemic. Uh, we we were lucky in a sense that we we had the opportunity to learn here in Ontario because we were the only community uh, in you know in the West that that had a mm-hmm. significant outbreak. But no, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, SARS was 18 years ago, and 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 things uh, were not as strong as they could have been. Uh, in terms of uh, the level of preparedness on on uh, globally and and certainly reflected here in Ontario and I and I think I feel very strongly that that the lessons learned from this event will last at least a generation because it's in the minds of all of us who uh, went through it well, we can only hope so, and I'm getting positive signs from governments because they're talking about, uh, well, you know, vaccination production and things of this nature and, and, and you know, keeping up storage of things like PPE and things of this nature. So I'd like to think that that's going to stick to it. But uh, as I've been saying on this program, I mean, it's up to we, the public, to ensure that our elected leaders uh, stick to it too. And, and, you know, when we start getting into budget cuts and things like that, this has got to be one of the things that we still consider to be a priority. Uh, doctor, I know how busy you are. I, I just want to thank you once again for taking some time for us, and thank you. and. 
and everybody uh, on the panel for the great work that you have done over the last year. We're, we're not out of it yet, but I think way down there, there's a light at the end of this tunnel here. And uh, it's through the, a lot of the great work and advice we're getting from you and your colleagues that I think we're going to reach that. Thank you, Bill, and we'll keep doing our job. You betcha. Thanks again, Doctor. Dr. Brian Schwartz, of course, uh, who is the co-chair of the Ontario Science Advisory Table, uh, giving advice and uh, hopefully some direction to the uh, provincial government about what we should be doing here going forward. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The jury, of course, uh, was unanimous in Minnesota, and uh, it was guilty on all charges in the, uh, the murder, of course, of George Floyd. Jackie Quinn's got some details for us. After former officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty. We are able to breathe again. George Floyd's brother, Felonis Floyd, outside the courthouse, says this black man's killing was different than others because it was caught on camera. <laughs> Other family members celebrated in Houston, as heard on KTRK-TV. Back in Minneapolis, the Reverend Al Sharpton says there's more work to do. We still have cases to fight. But this gives us the energy to fight on. I'm Jackie Quinn. So what happens next? There are other officers, by the way, that were charged uh, in, in this incident. And uh, wondering what kind of an impact uh, the verdict yesterday may have on that. And, of course, what's going to happen uh, going forward as well with uh, Derek Chauvin. Joining us to talk about all this is Andrew Fugirli, who is, of course, a lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Uh, and uh, always a, a welcome guest on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, two days of deliberation. Uh, is is that average? Were you surprised that uh, I, I talked to a number of people and saw some posts yesterday on social media that said they were surprised it took that long. Others suggesting that well, that that was rather short. What's what's your read on that? I thought it was a relatively short deliberation. I, I thought though that uh, given the video, uh, they, they probably had everything that they felt they needed. Um, and while I'm sure they went through parts of the evidence in some detail, uh, my sense is that this jury, uh, uh, a lot of the members of the jury, I should say, probably knew going into that deliberation uh, where their thinking was at. So um, it was uh, it was short, uh, in my view, which is which is not uncommon when you have, as in this case, um, a very strong crown case. It's it's interesting uh, about. What went on there in the closing arguments and, uh, and and the way that things were going? And as you mentioned, there was an awful lot of evidence, especially from the defense, to suggest that, you know, uh, it, that there's, there's a heart condition, there was the drug use, the illicit drug use, as the, as the uh, defense attorney kept going and referring to it in that particular phrase. Uh, but I, I thought the strongest argument came from the prosecution in the closing statement, Anthony, and they basically said, trust your eyes. You've seen the video. You saw what happened. Yeah, I, I agree entirely, Bill. When you have, um, you know, video evidence or uh, in large prosecutions, sometimes you'll get wiretap cases. Uh, there's nothing more compelling because um, you're literally uh, uh, seeing it, hearing it uh, as though you're there. You have the most impressive witness, uh, which is the video camera without frailties. Uh, and uh, uh, when the prosecution's in a situation where they can point to one piece of evidence like that and essentially let it speak for itself, you've got an uphill climb if you're the defense. 
I, I mean, there's an awful lot of other stuff that goes into this, and of course, an awful lot of testimony came out from expert witnesses on both sides of this, uh, talking about you know the minutia, I guess, of exactly when he died and and what could have caused this. But uh, I, I think the jury probably had the the same reaction all of us did when we saw that back in May of last year. Uh, that this horrific thing was happening right in front of our eyes, and and that seemed to be the uh, I guess the most damning piece of evidence against him. Entirely, entirely. And there was nothing the defense was able to do that could shake those feelings that those jurors, much like a lot of us, uh, got when we watched that video. You had the defense trying to throw things at the wall here, uh, uh, trying to raise doubts about the causation, trying to raise doubts about whether this was reasonable. Um, But in the face of that nine-plus-minute video, um, it's clear for the jury that not, none of that, none of those defense efforts stuck. In the charge to the jury, I, I was interested to, to hear the judge's comments on this, Anthony. And uh, he, I, I guess, is probably very common in most of these charges. He's, he's cautioned the jury: don't be influenced by the, the media, the outside information you're getting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in a case like this, which really has global significance, how can you not be impacted by that? Yeah, and and at the beginning of the trial, the jurors admitted they had seen the video, uh, they had seen news coverage about it, uh, and uh, uh, the key point, however, is because we don't expect our jurors to live under rocks. Mm -hmm. We know that they're consuming media. We know that they're talking about these issues at their dinner tables. The key is, can you put it aside? to render an impartial verdict. Can you can you put aside all of the media coverage and focus on the evidence you hear? And and in many ways our system is predicated on jurors parking that parking the um, consumption of the media coverage at the door, parking any prejudices at the door and doing their job. And there's been a lot of talk in the last couple of days about things that politicians have said or media coverage potentially influencing jurors. Um, and you get that in a lot of cases. Um, but unless there's a, some evidence that the jury was um, that the jury was influenced unduly, um, we trust and we expect jurors to be able to do their jobs and put all that aside. There's a, a lot of pressure, obviously, on both sides here, both on the, the prosecution and the defense side in situations like this. But given obviously the fact that we saw this and and there was information that was available to the public on this andrew uh plus the fact that uh, i think everybody was under the impression and i think rightly so that there there are going to be ramifications to this verdict whether it was going to be guilty or not guilty whatever the case might be uh whether it was going to be civil unrest uh, a number of other things i mean we just saw mere moments ago uh, the Attorney General, uh, Mayor Gartland, just announced that he was going to uh, initiate an investigation into uh, the behavior of Minnesota police, uh, which I guess is not surprising given the fact that there was a lot of testimony that suggested that he was simply following procedure. So that there's a, a floodgate of things that seem to be opening up here. It's got to put an awful lot of pressure on both sides to make sure that they get it right here. Yeah, this is the sort of gateway case that um, I, I think is going to potentially lead to some long-lasting changes in, if not American society, then in certain aspects of policing and the relationship that citizens and governments have with police forces. Um, I I think the Minnesota police force is going to come under federal scrutiny now. um, And I think much like in uh, uh, Canadian uh, inquiries, 
or commissions of inquiry, you're going to see some recommendations come out to police forces in terms of use of force, uh, in terms of dealing with racialized minorities, uh, and a, a reminder that uh, uh, there is going to be filming that happens in a lot of citizen-state interactions. This is going to be something that is is true going forwards. Uh, you know, the, the, the individuals who filmed this in this case have been uh, celebrated for what they did. And so I think any changes to the policing are going to have to be cognizant of that fact that police officers and citizens are going to be taped frequently when there's interactions uh, in public. Well, and historically we've seen that, haven't we? I mean, uh, the Rodney King incident, of course, in Los Angeles so many years ago, uh, we were surprised at that stage that somebody actually filmed this. Well, it was a guy from across the road, and the officers didn't know they were being filmed as uh, they pulled him out of the car and, and beat him. But it was there was video evidence of that, and you're, I think your point's well taken, Andrew. Now we're surprised if we don't have video of an incident. That's right. You know, with Rodney King, I mean, was it surprising that, that that was filmed? Yes, it was. It was 1991 or whatever it was. And you had someone with a camcorder filming it. Now everybody's got a camcorder on their phone. And, and you know, in my, in my neighborhood walking through, um, you'll see if police are, are interacting with an individual. There are, there are people who are reaching for their phones. Mm -hmm. uh, in cases where, where, you know, I'm defense counsel on the case, uh, it's not surprising nowadays to see uh, a piece of video evidence of a, a police and citizen interaction. So going forward, uh, that is going to be more the norm than the exception. We've seen it happen so many times. Uh, guilty on all counts, uh, which, again, I think surprised an awful lot of people after only a day and a half, really, of deliberation. Uh, we're told that uh, Chauvin could face up to 40 years in prison, but we're told also the sentencing won't be for a, a number of weeks now. Why the delay? There always is a delay. Um, the sentencing is a related but, but separate proceeding. There's evidence that is relevant to the sentencing that isn't relevant to the trial. Uh, you may have heard, Bill, the judge talk about a PSI. Um, that's a pre-sentence report. We have those here where probation officers will write reports uh, to the judge to uh, give them greater insight into uh, sort of the personal factors of the offender. Uh, the prosecution, the defense are going to want to potentially call witnesses. Uh, and this just takes time to put together. It's very rare uh, that in a case like this, you would have the sentencing proceed immediately. So this delay is, is very much par for the course. As part of that process, is that where your uh, victim impact statements would come into? Yes, yes. Uh, the, the prosecution will now uh, uh, seek those statements from George Floyd's family, uh, from his girlfriend, uh, uh, potentially from community leaders. Uh, I, I could see some sort of a, a sense of, uh, evidence put forward for the sentencing about the community impact of this case. Uh, and so all that takes some time to put together, and, and the sentencing hearing itself will not be a quick one. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to ask you about the community impact on this. And, and, and as you say, not just in the, in the Minnesota community, but we're talking about you know nationally, internationally, really, for that matter. The, uh, I know it's a, a bit of a cliche now, but the eyes of the world were on that courtroom to watch what was going to happen and, and see what the result was. Are you surprised, Andrew, that neither side went there uh, as they proceeded with their case? Uh, they, they stuck specifically with what happened uh, on that day on May 25th of, of last year. They didn't talk about uh, the impact or, or 
societal problems or things of that nature. It was certainly open to them, and everybody, I think, was there. It was hanging in the air there, but nobody went there. Well, I, I wasn't surprised. I, I think for both sides, uh, it was too risky to do that. For the prosecution, I think had they done that, um, you risk the trial judge getting involved and saying, no, you, you need to keep the focus on the evidence here. Um, and then you would have an issue where it would sound like the jury was being, for lack of a better term, intimidated by basically saying, look, everyone's watching you. You have to you have to render this verdict per uh, uh, what would make our, our justice system look better. Uh, the prosecution had a formidable case. They could stick to the evidence. On the flip side for the defense, I don't know what the benefit would be to talking about society um, and, and the societal benefits of an acquittal. Um, I, I just don't know that they had that ammunition um, and it wasn't really in line with the defense that they were trying to run. But obviously there are ramifications to this and we've seen that with the, with the reaction that we've had from the president, from the prime minister and so many other people over the last little while uh, going forward on a situation like this. Uh, there's always the concern, I guess, about about how the public are going to react to situations like this. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see this. I wanted to ask you, though, about the appeal process. I, I don't know. I have, as of 15 minutes ago when you and I started the conversation, I had not heard whether or not they're actually going to file an appeal. Is, is that... Uh, it's something that we can expect to see in in a situation like this. Yes, there, there's no there's no reason why he wouldn't appeal. I I would think. I mean, it's it, on the rare occasion the individual doesn't want to appeal after a, a, a conviction, but on a murder conviction, I mean, you're entitled by by law to to have a second look at it to be able to raise any potential errors. There were a number of evidentiary rulings in this case. Uh, there were pretrial rulings. Um, you you had the trial judge himself talk about uh, um, House of Representatives uh, Congresswoman Waters in her comments and, mm -hmm. and explicitly sort of targeting that as a potential ground of appeal. I'd be shocked if Chauvin didn't appeal. It's his right to do that. Um, I don't know how viable any potential arguments are on appeal. Uh, again, because of how strong the prosecution case was here. Uh, but I'd be shocked if he didn't file an appeal. Now, just to remind our listeners about that process, if you could, Andrew, uh, when if the if the defense comes forward, as you anticipate they're going to, and say, yeah, we want to appeal this, and the, the, you can't just say, I don't like the verdict. You've got to show something that that, uh, that you feel was done improperly in a situation like that, can't, don't you? Absolutely. It's not a, re it's not a second kick at the can. Um, and you can't get up and just say, um, uh, the, the, I don't like the verdict, as you said, Bill. I mean, you can, you can make an argument that the verdict's unreasonable, but that's a high legal task. What you're doing is you're going to the appeal panel and you are targeting uh, what you assert are errors of law and say that because those errors were made, um, it potentially impacted the trial and the verdict and deprived uh, Chauvin of a fair trial. That's what he's going to be arguing. So he'll have to point to explicit errors uh, that he says took place and show that those errors were significant at the end of the day or had the potential to be significant. Yeah, does that start that process or can the, the, the tribunal simply refuse to hear the appeal? They'll always, it's different per jurisdiction, um, uh, but you certainly, Chauvin's lawyers will certainly get the chance to file a brief uh, a written argument uh, and make the argument how much uh, sway those arguments would have. I I don't know, uh, but uh, they'll certainly consider the appeal. 
Andrew, there are three other officers that were charged. The charges against them are not as serious as the ones against Chauvin, obviously. How does what happened yesterday impact what's going to be happening going forward? It wouldn't surprise me if um, you saw, at least in in one or two of those cases, a, a plea bargain now happen. Um, you know, the, the the fact of the matter, Bill, is is Chauvin was the prosecution's big fish. It was the one he was the one they had to have, and I think he was the one they felt that they had to show that they uh, went for it on on a trial. Um, these three individuals, while the charges against them obviously are serious. Um, it, it may be that they decide that uh, um, a, a plea arrangement works uh, for at least one or two of them. And on the flip side, if you're the defense in those cases, um, I think you have to take into account that Chauvin went down and went down very quickly, uh, that the jury came back quickly with a verdict and convicted on all three counts. Um, and, and it may, for those three officers, um, it may dissuade them from rolling the dice as well if there's a deal on the table for them. Seeing how this trial played out, uh, it may uh, make them more willing to take that deal. Well, more to come on this, clearly. Uh, it's, it's a very confusing time and uh, a lot of information here. Why we're so happy that you were able to spend some time with us to talk about this. And as you say, more uh, legal action to come on this. And uh, we look forward to our further conversations, Andrew. Thanks so much for this today. Anytime, Bill. Thanks for having me. Take care. Andrew Figuerly, of course, who was a lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto, a criminal lawyer himself. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Ontario Hockey League right now has uh, made it official. They have cancelled the 2020-21 season, uh, has been cancelled, quashing any hopes of uh, even a shortened season this year. Uh, Global's Andrew Graham has the details. The league says while it came close, Ontario's COVID-19 situation had worsened and the stay-at-home order made it impossible for the OHL to play a season. Commissioner David Branch says more information will be revealed next week on the return to play for next season. We anticipate playing a 68-game schedule as we normally would and uh, are working through a number of elements on the structure of games, number of games. Branch says the league is also hoping to convene training camps on Labor Day weekend. No games in the OHL have been played since mid-March of last year. Andrew Graham, Global News. Well, joining us to talk about this is Michael Andler. Michael, of course, is the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs of the OHL. Michael, thanks for the time. I wish it was under better circumstances, but uh, glad you could hop on with us today. Yeah, it's been a long time, Bill. Uh, Yes, I'm glad to be here. Well, I was yeah, I was going to wait until the season started to have you back on, but I guess that's not going to happen now. So let's let's talk about the decision. I know you've had a number of conversations uh, with Dave Branch and, and with some of the other uh, governors, of course, in the league. What was this, the discussion all about, Michael, and how did it go? Well, it has been many, there have been many discussions, Bill. Uh, I think I said yesterday, if I can, if if there was thirty of them throughout the the, the season, it's uh, I might be on the short side of uh, discussions. It's been. Uh, it's been a challenging time, uh, needless to say, with the fluidity of, of this virus. Uh, and uh, it was always the intention to get our players back on the ice, if nothing else, to showcase their talents to to uh, and, and let them, you know, live out their dreams. Uh, unfortunately, uh, circumstances, uh, you know, our, our mandate was to try to get them back in a safe uh, you know, looking at the safety and welfare of our players and getting the Ontario government to give the thumbs up, uh, particularly the chief medical officer, uh, uh, 
giving it the thumbs up to, to play in a safe, in a safe manner. Uh, so we, we went through ups and downs throughout the year. Uh, and finally, the window of opportunity came available um, sometime in, uh, and you got to understand, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't wish the, the premier's job on anybody uh, no. during these, these times, uh, you know, with the fluidity of everything and, and the, you know, you're getting pulled and pushed and, and, and you don't know what is right uh, because the, the, the nature of this, uh, of this uh, changes, uh, literally. And, and then this third wave came along. So the opportunity came along in late April. I'm sorry, late March. Uh, we're not in late April. Yeah, late March. Uh, very late March. And, and uh, the chief medical officer suggests it give it the thumbs up based on playing in a bubble environment, you know, uh, with uh, from a, you know, with the approval of provincial health units, particularly in rural Ontario and areas which were green, you know, green zones and and mm-hmm. and, uh, and safe and and with the proper practices similar to what they have in the NHL. In light of the fact that it was a short, you know, short season, perhaps you know, twenty games, more, you know, not to, not to necessarily have a champion uh, uh, for the year, but certainly to showcase, have these young men, uh, uh, you know, get showcased um, and uh, and play. So uh, that that came about, uh, I guess, two weeks ago or two and a half weeks ago. Got the thumbs up from the government, and literally within within. 24, 48 hours, the case counts went skyrocketing. And uh, obviously the government, the Ontario government, had to kind of pull back, and, and rightly so, because I think it would have been a really a more, even more anxious time had we had we just, you know, be given the approval and, you know, get in a bubble environment and, and, and everything, everything is going down right now, especially with the lockdown. Mm-hmm. When they extended the lockdown, obviously now we're running out of runway and uh, you know, with the NHL draft uh, being uh, slated for the end of July or mid, yeah, mid to end of July, we, we it was, uh, you know, and and let's face it, if we were playing a regular season, we would be in the conference finals right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, the end, you know, the end of the year uh, for the OHL season. Uh, so being pragmatic and, and realistic, it made sense uh, and state and, and and for the safety and wellness purposes. Uh, of our players, it was the right thing to do to uh, to call it a, a day on 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 and vote on it on on uh, I guess what a Tuesday Tuesday uh, and uh, we uh, uh, basically went yeah actually it was no sorry it was Monday and and then uh, yesterday uh, announced it and um, here we are now now it's a it was a somber day yesterday as I told Scott Radley but at at the end of the day uh, and today we can look forward i had a call with all the players and their parents um and uh, made them focus on on the future and i feel quite confident that uh, as uh preluded on your show there with respect to starting on labor day uh so long as the federal government gets us those vaccines so we can put them in arms we'll be in a position to be uh, uh ready to go on labor day I know that you and Steve Stales have been in contact with the players uh, through the, well, it's over a year now, I guess, since they canceled the last season. Uh, how are they handling this? Because, I mean, you, uh, there's two different perspectives here. Of course, uh, as, as the owner of the Bulldogs, you're very concerned about the, you know, the kids themselves, the players themselves. But also you sit in the board of directors for the, for the Montreal Canadiens. So, you know, that at the other end of this, there's a lot of guys on this team, Michael, as you know, that want to pursue a career in the National Hockey League. Uh, and, and junior hockey is is 
one of the best, if not the best, springboard to be able to do that. You've had a number of guys that have graduated from the Bulldogs and are doing very well in the National Hockey League right now. What happens to these guys, though? I mean, because how do you how do you scout a league that hasn't played for almost a year now? Yeah, uh, so it's a very uh, very true. But the OHL is the, is the best developmental league. Uh, for the NHL. There are more people yeah. drafted from the OHL than any other league in the world, uh, including the Western Hockey League and the Q. Um, so there's no doubt, uh, you know, when Trevor Timmons, uh, you know, uh, who, who's our assistant general manager, calls and, and responsible for scouting and, and you know, says, hey, uh, is, are we, are we going to play? Is OHL going to be playing yet? Um, it, it's, uh, it's a tough, you know, it'll be a bit of a crapshoot for this year's draft. Um, uh, having said that, we'll, we will try to get uh, you know some type of of, of um, a platform so we can showcase them uh, if we can before before the draft. It's it's not much, uh, but it will be a crapshoot. Uh, and as I told the players, I mean at the end of the day, I mean Steve actually told a great a great one. He, he talked about the year that the NHL didn't play the full year in 0405 and uh, you know how it how it you know it, you have to look beyond that if you had a shoulder surgery and you were out for the season on your draft year you have to look beyond that and and the reality is it is your draft year but it doesn't mean that you're not going to get drafted the following year or the year after mm-hmm. a local uh, you know local Hamiltonian uh, uh, Brendan Sagan uh, was a perfect example, whereas like two years later that he got drafted to the NHL. Uh, so I, you never know uh, when the opportunity arises, and and, and uh, uh, but it is tough. It is, it's tough for our rookies who just drafted to who's not who haven't even donned a Bulldogs jersey, and it's also tough for our last year players uh, who uh, basically are are. Uh, uh, are not going to play uh, next year, so they've never get, got to say, you know, kind of say goodbye to our fans. Um, so it's it, it was it was it's tough, but I know it's tough on everybody, uh, and it's a matter how you rebound. And right now, we've got to look forward to next year and and uh, hold our head high. And, and the ones with the you know the uh, and the ones who can uh, it's like everything else, right? The strongest survive, and and uh, mm-hmm. it's an opportunity to be even stronger uh, next year, both as a hockey as a league and as a player. I, I mean, there were those of us that are, you know, looking forward to the season that really thought that there was a pretty good chance, as you just mentioned. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, it seemed as if that was going to happen. But, uh, and, and, but I've been, you know, juxtaposing that against some of the comments made by the minister, uh, sport minister, Lisa McLeod, uh, about what's going on. And, and I know she's a big fan, too, from the Ottawa area. She's a big 67s fan, loves junior hockey. But, but you know, Michael, last year, I mean, the NHL did use the bubble format. And as a matter of fact, Toronto, as we all know, of course, is one of the sites. And it worked. Uh, and, and, you know, there was no vaccine then, and there was a concern, and there was a lockdown then, too, and it seemed to work. I, I, was it, is it the provincial government that was basically the ones that's saying yes or no into this? I mean, I got this, the sense from some of the comments from Dave Branch earlier uh, that they were going to try to find a ma- way to make this work, but you're right, they can't do anything without the blessing of the government here. No, and, that, and then you have, to, you have to respect that. Um, I mean, you know, so, yes, uh, they did, they they. they, they re- in a bubble without vaccines. Now, uh, you know, you, they still have bubble environments within teams, uh, uh, and you're still getting outbreaks like they did in Vancouver. Yeah. Um, I, I think from a, from a, you know, we did have, uh, 
it's it, first of all, it's very costly. I mentioned that yesterday this guy Scott Rowdy show. I said, well, you know, to do to have an abridged version of of a season uh, to at least showcase the players, you know, twenty games, maybe six weeks or uh, two months, a little less than two months. Uh, uh, we would we would have it would have still cost us in the neighborhood of about three million dollars just just in, in COVID testing. You know, because in order to keep that bubble, you know, you have to test the players on a daily mm-hmm. basis, and and, and uh, so it's 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 not a it, financially, it's a different league uh, as well. You have to you have to understand that uh, there's no way we could have played a full season in in a bubble bubble environment. Uh, and frankly, you know, if you look at the Ontario government, they they do have stringent uh, uh, you know. Uh, guidelines and, and case in plain uh when we were trying to get the bubble for season to get started uh at the nhl level ontario was the last province to say yay and you know if you look at the raptors and the blue jays they're not playing yeah. in toronto um you know but and you know chief medical officer and, and frankly with everything going on in the ontario government uh there are probably a lot of other priorities uh, to be focusing on. Oh, sure, uh, I understand that. The OHL, so that, that you got to put things in perspective as well, and I, I got to respect that. You know, and, and there would have been some logistical concerns anyway. I mean, because let's face it, there were some American teams uh, in the OHL, and of course they can't cross the border right now because of the restrictions that are going on. That's why the Raptors and the Blue Jays aren't playing in Toronto these days. Uh, so that could have been a problem too. But it's 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 very disappointing, I know, for all, all of us that were looking forward to this. We should mention though, I, and I. I I guess to try to, to leave this on a high note that you know they are shooting for for Labor Day weekend and try to get things going, but the Bulldogs organization uh, is still very active in this community. I know the guys haven't been on the ice now for a year, uh, but but I know your guys are, are still doing public appearances. The foundation is still working uh, and and doing some great stuff in the community. So uh, uh, the, the 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 team that you've got uh, sadly is uh, is not going to be on the ice this year, but the the greater team, of course, of the Bulldogs organization uh, is alive and well and. And doing quite well, and, and still working very, very diligently in this community, aren't they? Well, that's probably when we need it most. When, when the, you know, the, the kids need, need us the most at the foundation level, and Peggy Chapman's doing an incredible job. Uh, uh, she's so passionate about it, as you know. And and uh, uh, and you know, when she asks, uh, there's you know, there's no way to say no to her. Uh, so um, it's been a, it's been a, you know, that's definitely one of the great. Um, uh, great things that the Bulldogs have been able to contribute in the community, and, and I'm very proud of it. And, and I think it, everybody feels good about it too. So uh, that's uh, yeah. Well, she's sure. like, she's like a mama bear, isn't she, Michael? I mean, you know, she's, well, she she takes so much pride in, in the yeah. players. <laughs> Keeps me posted yeah. every time a, a former Bulldog gets a goal in the NHL. I get a note from Peggy. Hey, just see who scores. So she 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 just loves them to pieces, and I know a lot of people in the community do too. Uh, but it looks as if with vaccinations that are rolling along here now, uh, that as, as disappointing as this is, that it looks uh, is by Labor Day that we're not going to be out of this yet. But it, it looks a lot more tangible that it, to be able to put something together at that stage. And Dave Branch is now talking about a full season next year. Yeah, and I feel you know, being in the healthcare logistics business, we, we we've got the responsibility and privilege of of. of of warehousing and distributing the vaccines for the Ontario government and mm-hmm. other governments in in, in the Canada, um, and uh, you know when you look at the numbers uh, around the world, and I and I use the example of the UK because only because there was a there was a picture of Soho on the weekend 
paper. Um, I don't know if it's financial post or the old mail, but and it was just packed, and the bars were open and everything. And there, they have 33 million people vaccinated with at least one dose, and with AstraZeneca, I might add, which is a controversial one here. But the reality is, is that you know, without enough time, it's very hard to to validate. Uh, numbers and, and the likes. But anyway, long and short of it, I'm not going to get to that subject, but uh, uh, <laughs> over 50% of, of UK citizens have been vaccinated and there's a sense of normalcy now. Uh, in Canada, we only have 19%. Um, and uh, so I think the urgency of getting vaccines in arms is there. The reality is that we don't have vaccines. I know, you know, warehouses of yesterday, we had 4,400 doses of Moderna and that's it. No Pfizer, no AstraZeneca already out, out in, in their in, in facilities, inject, uh, injection facilities, uh, inoculation facilities, I should say. So uh, um, I think once we get to the 50%, and I'm sure we'll get there, uh, you know, unfortunately it's not today and it, it'd probably be sometime in June or July, um, we'll probably see some sense of normalcy so long as this strain doesn't uh, change um, even uh, but I think I, I feel very confident that with the lights at the end of the tunnel it's gonna you know uh, it might take a bit of our summer away but I think by the end of the summer our boys will be able to come to training camp get registered at schools and and be ready and and we'll have a sense of normalcy and our fans will get to enjoy uh, uh, the bulldogs and and uh, everything that uh, they offer to our community well, we look forward to that date. Michael, I know how busy you are with uh, both uh, enterprises, of course, and, and the great work that you and your company are doing uh, with the vaccine rollout as well. So uh, thank you for spending some time with us today, and uh, fingers crossed uh, for the upcoming season. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Yes, Bill, stay safe, and thanks for having me on. Thank you. Michael Andelar, of course, owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, uh, the cancellation of the season. But uh, as Michael says, uh, it looks pretty good for next year because of the vaccination program. And I'm glad he brought that up, too, that he has, uh, his company, of course, is uh, a major player in uh, making sure the vaccines uh, are being distributed around, uh, hopefully more of them coming in the uh, not-too-distant future as well. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.